This is A Penny for Your Thoughts. I'm Farrell Styers. Innovation has always been one of the big engines for business growth and for getting ahead of one's competitors. Companies that do it first or do it well tend to do well. For at least the last 10 years, innovation has become so hyped that companies who were using unproven business models and have never even turned a profit can be valued at millions or even billions of dollars if they're seen as disruptive innovators. These companies often began as scrappy young upstarts who, despite their size, completely upend the business models of traditional operators in whatever space they're working in. But their new way of working is so innovative that investors and consumers see huge value. The most famous of these are the tech unicorns like Uber and Airbnb. But these stories go far beyond tech. They include food, cosmetics, travel, and pretty much any other industry you can name. Now, if you're working in a big traditional firm, you might look at these companies and wonder how they've managed such a feat. Or you may be jealous of their ability to move so quickly, take such big risks, and think in such novel ways. This is innovation envy. How can a big, slow-moving, traditional player be more like these smaller, disruptive innovators? We're talking to a few people today who have some ideas on how to do this. First, we'll talk to the man who literally wrote the book on innovation envy. I'm Philip, I'm managing partner at Insights Consulting. I'm the co-author of Innovation Envy, which I guess that's what we're here for. That is what we're here for. And to get us started, let's look at an innovator who isn't one of these tech unicorns, but is a great example of someone who came into a big industry dominated by massive global players and managed to thoroughly disrupt it. Hi, I'm Mike, founder of dollarshaveclub.com. What is dollarshaveclub.com? Well, for a dollar a month, we send high quality razors right to your door. Dollar Shave Club started with a random conversation back in 2012 between two friends, Michael Dubin and Mark Levine. They discussed how terrible shopping for razors was. Not only were they expensive, considering you were only buying a tiny metal blade attached to a plastic handle, but the entire experience was frustrating and even embarrassing. First, you had to get to the store and find the grooming section. But once you got there, there was a bewildering array of razors with different features, different numbers of blades, different colors and brands. And once you'd gone through the exhaustive mental exercise of choosing, you had to find a store clerk because often the items were kept under lock and key. The conversation planted the seed for a new business idea, a subscription service for inexpensive, high quality razors delivered to your home. In a short time, Michael Dubin had quit his job to launch the company and to get things started, he starred in a now famous slapstick video introducing the concept. Yeah, a dollar. Are the blades any good? No. Our blades are f***ing great. Hours after launching the video, the company had 12,000 orders, and it only grew from there. Their rise was stratospheric. Dollar Shave Club eventually claimed 16% of the market. And recall, this in a sector dominated by massive global players. Now, back to Philip. 
He co-wrote the Innovation Envy book, or book scene as he calls it, that this episode is based on. And he and his co-author wrote the book because they could see an audience for it. The audience is definitely people in, I would say, consumer insights, marketing and innovation, because in a way, uh, let's say in the story, we tap into the three angles or the three dimensions. Uh, but it's, of course, it's about innovation, but we know that it's more than just R&D and, and technical innovation. There is also a lot of consumer insight that comes into it. There is a lot of go-to-market and marketing that goes into it. Mm -hmm. So it's a more holistic approach on um, on innovation. Who is it for specifically within that audience? It's those companies, which we call the incumbents, uh, larger organizations um, that we see have a hard time, uh, let's say, getting to uh, market fast, um, uh, or they see a high failure of whatever they uh, launch in terms of new products. Um, and then they look at these successful disruptors, startup-like um, smaller companies mm -hmm. that are very agile, fast, effective, um, and are actually eating away market share. So it's meant for those uh, companies that have um, the ability to scale, uh, so they are—they have larger organizations, have well-established brands, but have a hard time bringing new relevant innovation uh, into the market. There are a couple of ways that the big incumbents get closer to the disruptors chipping away at their market share. First, they can just buy them. In fact, in 2016, Unilever bought Dollar Shave Club for over a billion dollars. Another way they can try to get some of their mojo is to steal. Well, not actually steal, but some big companies just look at what's succeeding for the small disruptors and try to do something similar. AB InBev not only buys successful craft breweries, but they've also created brands and products that copy the style and branding of the movement. But at its core, Innovation Envy is a framework to help companies be more like these smaller brands. So if you, if you look at those successful stories of disruptors, for us there is three elements. One is friction and then we see over and over again with those disruptors often their innovation starts from a personal friction or attention that they experience in day-to-day -day life think here about michael dubin and dollar shave club he had a personal friction the misery of the shopping experience for razors and he built a new way to solve it the second one is passion uh, and that is something again just to uh, take the example of Michael Dubin again, he realizes, well, it's not something that I can do as a hobby. Starting up this business is something that I need to own. I need to be accountable for everything, every step in the process. Um, so for us, the passion bit um, is also something that we feel the incumbents might be lacking, um, and let's say, to a certain extent, uh, meaning also for them, they work on that one solution. And there is that one solution for that friction that they have. And they will not give up. That's the one thing that they will be working on. If you look at large income organizations, they have a funnel. And they want a funnel. They want to have a funnel with a lot of ideas and concepts in there. Mm -hmm. And then they treat those concepts more as, um, I would say, uh, yeah, not, not so much as assets and, and, and maybe too much as one of those things that we have uh, in the funnel. Maybe yeah. not as passionate yeah. as they should be. And the third one is then uh, piloting or pilot, um, uh, which... Actually, we initially wanted to call gut uh, because that is what it is about. It is this 
thing about going into the market and, and, and start selling um, and marketing your innovation, um, maybe when it's not 100% ready. It's maybe when it's 90, 95% ready, go in there. And another word that you could use is beta testing. An example that I also refer to in the book scene is Goddess Garden. Um, this is Nova Covington. Uh, she is the founder uh, of that company. Again, personal friction. Her daughter was uh, super allergic to any uh, skincare product uh, out there in the market. So she developed her own skincare line. She started selling her first almost prototypes um, in a farmer's market in Boulder, Colorado. So again, there it is about going into the market. Uh, it is, by the way, a practice that we see uh, more and more already within uh, incumbents. Uh, so some of our clients already realize that these big nationwide launches of a fully, uh, let's say, validated concept is not the, the way forward. So we see what we um, what they call or we call uh, scale up initiatives. Uh, you, you start something um, on a smaller scale can be with one retailer, one bar and whatever, a couple of stores. Um, and then you just see is this a success? Well, why not? How can we optimize? And you give it actually time to scale up. And then ultimately, uh, those incumbents might end up with a nationwide launch. And so those are the three components of um, uh, the framework that we feel uh, to one extent or the other, a lot of the incumbents envy. So we have friction. What is the need or problem you're trying to resolve? Passion. Are there dedicated and creative people willing to keep the spark alive? And pilot. Can we take the risk of going to market without a fully refined product and learn from that launch, even if it's imperfect? Now, this friction, passion, pilot framework makes sense, and it seems to fit what we see in reality. But what's the connection to research? After all, this was dreamed up by a couple of market researchers, so they must have had a view on how research fits into all of this. We started with friction and asked Philip how relevant it was to someone working in a market research function. Very. I, I would say it's uh, everything about it is relevant for the industry because as uh, from a disruptor standpoint, uh, the, the friction is something that they live by. They don't, they don't need to identify it. That's something that they, uh, uh, that they live by. Um, in larger organizations, we need a function within the organization that actually brings that friction, friction in. Yeah, so they need to go out, identify, validate, and bring uh, that friction in. So I think that is of all the, uh, let's say, of all the DNA elements, I think this is where there is the highest fit with, uh, with, uh, with the consumer insights or the research um, uh, function. Uh, because it is about going out there, immersing with consumers um, in relation to the category and uh, really kind of observing habits, uh, talking to them about frictions and tensions, um, ultimately trying to identify consumer insights. And where consumer insights is the unit, let's say, of um, or is the currency of innovation uh, in a way because it can offer a platform to then start building solutions. At these smaller startups, Philip says, they don't need to rely on market research because they live the friction. The incumbents need to generate that by generating insights through consumer research. This is probably at the, at the intersection of friction and, and passion is where you say, okay, I have this one and I'm going for it. Uh, all in for that one uh, single uh, tension or friction that I have. It is, uh, it is almost like a luxury to only have one. Um, of course, if you are a large organization, you also need to have more than one. You cannot have all your 
organization or your whole innovation department work on just solving one issue? Maybe, maybe yes. I'm, I'm, I'm actually not even sure if that is the case. There is a lot of qualities and benefits also for, for being a large incumbent organization. Yeah. You have R&D departments. You have probably the best in the world to develop new formulas or, or whatever. So I, I think it is definitely a strength of those um, incumbents that they need to tap into. As a big incumbent, you are not your target market. Researchers need to find and validate frictions faced by consumers. So there's a clear need for research in the friction part of the innovation model. Let's look at passion. This concept of ownership, accountability, this all like owning the funnel or let's say putting someone at a, um, um, let's say, leading this, this innovation uh, to, from insight to, um, to go to market. Mm -hmm. um, that is something uh, that is lacking. When you look at incumbent organizations, it's more like a relay race. Uh, we, we, we identify an insight, then we hand it over to R&D, then it goes to, um, let's say, marketing. They hire an ad agency. And by the way that it actually gets to market, there is a huge gap often between what the initial intent was of the concept and the solution and then what the, what the final execution was. And so by handing it over, um, uh, you lose a little bit this, let's say, ownership and this, okay, this is my passion project and, and I'm going to uh, I'm gonna go for every, I'm going to be available for every decision that needs to be yeah. uh, made or every decision that needs to be taken. So I think that is one um, element which I believe a lot of incumbents, again, Envy. The second one um, is the illusion of, I would say, creativity within the organization. And then uh, thinking again of um, Nova Covington, Goddess Garden, I'm bringing her back. So what, what you see there is she was the expert in identifying the tension or she, because she was living with her daughter that was allergic uh, to, to most of, or if not all of the skincare products available in the market. Mm -hmm. But then she had to rely on others to actually um, um, yeah, build her solution. So she actually, her husband was a nutritional scientist um, in a way that is a, a type of crowdsourcing. You actually hire, um, uh, let's say, an external expert to do the, the concept uh, development or to develop uh, creative solutions. And this is where we meet our second guest, Francois Pitavi. So my name is uh, Francois Pitavi. I'm the CEO of ICA. And uh, actually, I, I come from different worlds that connect pretty nicely with what ICA does because in my past, I've been working in the film production industry. I've also been working on digital marketing uh, agency world and also um, in marketplaces with eBay, the online platform. And as you'll see, ICA connects those dots pretty nicely because it is, not, it is in some way a marketplace for ideas and creativity for brands. A small note here. Since recording this, Francois has left ICA, but he spent years leading the company and has a great deal of insight on creative crowdsourcing. To understand how this fits with our Innovation Envy model, we need to understand how creative crowdsourcing works. So ICA is a, is a way for brands and agencies to find freshness uh, in creativity, find new ways of uh, building brands and bring novelty in the way they innovate, build consumer experiences. And the way we, we create that freshness, uh, the way we bring unexpected ideas is uh, through a community of uh, 400,000 creative people uh, who are registered on our platform. So we have a, the, the core of what we do is based on the online platform where there's 
this community um, gathers. What we do is typically we take challenges from brands, could be innovation, consumer experience, uh, creative development, and we take those challenges and bring them to our community in the form of competitions, online competitions, which last a few days, typically a few weeks, uh, and the community delivers um, ideas uh, against that competition uh, to win prize money. A brand that's in this passion part of the Innovation Envy story needs to take an insight that embraces a consumer friction and turn that into an idea and then a concept. Where incumbents often hit a roadblock is that they try to do this internally, and those company insiders may not have the newest or freshest ideas. Startups don't have this problem because they have no history. Ica uses creative crowdsourcing to allow a company to put together a challenge and then have thousands of proven creatives compete to come up with the best solution to that challenge, harnessing their creative passion. What our clients tell us is that very often, because they just try to ideate internally, they always get the same type of ideas because they are so much into uh, the category that they don't see things coming outside. And so experience proves that this process and those ideas usually bring the power to kind of uh, disrupt uh, the status quo, these ideas are really out of the box, and actually we kind of throw the box away in some way. Um, <laughs> and when those concepts actually are uh, properly transformed, for example, through workshops, what we see is that they deliver better, uh, for example, in screenings and in markets, uh, they deliver better in a range of something like 20 to 40 percent, uh, especially on attributes such as uh, uniqueness. Uh, because those people are not constrained by uh, the way things are getting done or what are the conventions in the category, for example, and also uh, in terms of relevance. These ideas are actually very relevant to consumers because also they're coming from, in some way, the whole mouth, uh, people who are actually close to consumers. That's all well and good to hear how helpful creative crowdsourcing is from someone who sells creative crowdsourcing for a living. But what if you're the one buying it? We also spoke to someone who had the experience of integrating creative crowdsourcing into a larger product innovation program. I'm Mathilde and I'm responsible for uh, consumer and market insight within uh, Racket Bankizer. That is Mathilde Levy of Racket Bankizer, usually shortened as RB. You may not know RB by name, but you likely know many of their brands like Airwick, Durex, Lysol, Vanish, and dozens of others. Mathilde is responsible for market insights, so she oversees all research there. And the case we wanted to speak to her about was Sillet Bang, a line of household cleaning products. They wanted to innovate with Sillet Bang, but they faced a challenge. The challenge with the brand is that it is seen as a very uh, tough brand. Uh, these are really uh, tough cleaner, I would say. So you use usually Silit Bang uh, uh, when you have really uh, a place that is very dirty and you, you want to uh, a strong product to clean your surfaces. So that's the positioning of uh, uh, the core positioning of Silit Bang. So roughly in the range, we had, I would say, like, 
maybe two to uh, three to four uh, different products. So it was uh, quite a, a small uh, range of, of products. And so it, it's not always easy to innovate on this brand because uh, due to this really uh, uh, strong equity, strong positioning, etc. Uh, so that can be seen a bit, uh, a bit niche also and a bit polarizing for the consumer. They had a strong brand, but they were also facing a decline in what she described as, quote, business performance for the brand. They needed something new to reinvigorate the business. They conceived of a research program where they would immerse with consumers and then immerse with their team in that consumer reality and create new ideas for the future. Listening to the non-users was also really important to really understand the drivers and the barriers for the brand. We also uh, did a brainstorming piece with the consumers. So uh, through uh, role uh, plays, etc., they could uh, give their suggestion in terms of new product ideas or brand stretching or all that kind of stuff. There was really an immersion phase so that uh, also the team could really uh, feel uh, I would say the insights are really understanding them. She explained that all of this went well, except that the consumers and her team struggled to come up with useful new ideas. The research generated plenty of insights about the needs people still faced, but not innovative ways to address them. It's very hard for uh, people working on the brand uh, 24 hours a day to come with uh, with new ideas also. So in fact, uh, we, we had some nice ideas, but it was not super creative, I would say. Mathilde explained that this wasn't a route they had anticipated using beforehand, but it became the most practical option. As I see it, you can't do creative so, uh, crowdsourcing uh, without deeply understanding your, your consumer first. So you, uh, as I see it, you couldn't skip the online community. You really had to do first the online community to understand the consumer, to let the organization or the, the company feel and experience the insights. So that's also a question of communicating uh, all the findings and then you go to creative uh, crowdsourcing. Uh, so it was a really uh, a richer than from what we obtain from internal brainstorming or in brainstorming with, uh, with the consumers, because these people are really creative. They were recruited for this skill, I would say, and you could really see uh, the difference. And what is great is also not to have only the perspective of the French people, but maybe also from the Brazilian ones or uh, I don't know, uh, uh, wherever they, they sit, because sometimes in their market, there are some uh, already some, some stuff that are interesting happening and that can also uh, enrich the community. So the diversity of uh, nationalities for me is, a, is an asset. And that is how RB fit the passion part of our project. They overcame their narrow vision of the market by using a pool of creatives to help them think outside the box. But they built it all on the frictions of their customers. And they did this without the two to three years that she said it would normally take. RB developed a new wipe based on the research that hit the market in a fraction of the time. This brings us to the third and final portion of our model, pilot. 
Many companies use a stage gate or a traffic light system where for each step closer to releasing the product to the market, there needs to be key metrics attained and full buy-in from all internal stakeholders. Otherwise, the project is stopped. Now, going back to Philip, he says incumbents should reconsider the strategy. I think the, the idea is, uh, remember the traffic lights where, let's say, if in traditional stage gate uh, type of organizations, you need a green light mm -hmm. on everything, on all your decisions, on all your marketing mix elements, you need a green light, and then we go full force, and we have a media plan, and then we invest, and we go, uh, and we go with it. Um, and, and there is two things about that. One is, once you have all that information based on concept tests and volumetrics and whatever that you did to, uh, let's say, build confidence that you're doing the right thing by launching it and by putting all those millions behind it, there is this feeling of, yes, we made it. We launched a product, success, guys, well done. And then I say, well, you haven't proven anything. Um, and then the second one is, why don't you then, with with that concept in mind, why don't you launch a little bit faster, a little bit earlier, maybe when the or when you have an orange light, uh, where you're not 100% sure, but maybe 90% sure, and then we come into this MVP um, uh, kind of space, um, and and where you say, look guys, let's um, let's agree that we do it. We're not going to do a full nationwide launch. Let's start small and beautiful, um, and then do this scale up, and that is what we consider a pilot go into the market but from day one also make sure that you measure in market success that you know what is going on and not only based on sales first of all if you look at some of the sales data comes way too late um, and and it's definitely incomplete and then we need to speed up let's say the process and say okay what is going on because there is so many hypotheses it could be the product. It could be that people, uh, let's say, buy the product, but they use it in an occasion that is that it, what is not intended for. Mm -hmm. um, it can be that it's in the wrong shelf or in the wrong aisle. Can be that people have misunderstood the communication or haven't picked up on the communication. There is a lot of confusion about what the product actually is based on the campaign that has been launched. So there's so many assumptions, um, and and you should actually make sure that you have that 360 degree view on the performance of your in-market initiative at all times. So that is, uh, let's say, the true pilot mentality, mentality is not only to do it, mm -hmm. to pilot, but also to make sure that you have a feedback system uh, in place, and which is often a mix of quantity, I would say really kind of hardcore data, yeah. but also more, uh, let's say, feedback, qualitative feedback from consumers. Yeah. Um, but whenever something is wrong, you should iterate. You should be able to iterate. If you go into a pilot, it, it has always to be with how are we going to optimize and are we prepared for failure? And because that is also something that I hear a lot when they say, uh, yeah, but our company doesn't really have uh, um, a culture of failure. And then I say, well, you're going to fail anyway. 50% fails. Just embrace it and learn from it at least. Philip gave an example from Pepsi who used this pilot approach to innovation. They already had an existing uh, proposition. It's called Drinkfinity. Uh, it existed in Brazil, was pretty successful. Um, and then they wanted to prepare this for the launch in US. US, obviously, always the big market, the big bet. Um, uh, but they decided not to do it in a traditional launch because they said, well, we already have 
a concept that is working, like it, it is actually working in uh, in a market. We just need to fine-tune, um, let's say, the go-to-market and maybe certain um, aspects of the product. Um, so how we went in, they we or they actually decided on a pilot market, which was in this case 3,000 employees mm -hmm. within the target group, let's say health and wellness-minded uh, consumers within a certain demographic. Um, and we actually sent those um, uh, 3,000 people surveys and then we actually sent them a welcome kit and so they were actually part of a market because they got the product they got to taste the product use the product um and then they also had to reorder the because it, the system is a, a vessel um uh, that you can fill with water and then you have uh pods the pods are a mix of dry and liquid ingredients you place the pod on top of the bottle you push it through you shake it and you have a flavored nutritious uh, water and so that is, that is the concept um so we also wanted to see how are consumers using this when are they using it are there any issues with the manipulation of the product what about let's say sustainability of those pods all those all those questions were addressed um and also they had to reorder and pay for those pods so when they actually were happy they went on to the wow. uh, it was a um, really a real consumer a real consumer it's really a very realistic pilot market um and uh, this was uh, i think a great initiative in terms of creating a pilot market that is pretty low risk mm -hmm. um, uh, but what they used it for is in the course of probably six to eight months they did 10 studies they really decided on pricing they went into what is the uh, our future funnel in terms of varieties um, or what is the ux of our e-commerce module so they actually informed and, and tested the whole go-to-market our launch campaign messaging so all of that was uh, measured uh, tested and also optimized for the full launch then with consumers, which is happening uh, now. So it's now fully launched. Oh, really? So yeah. it did go to market? Yeah, so it wow. did go to market. And we're actually now replicating the same with consumers. So with the pilot phase, the Innovation Envy approach is to get your product out in front of your customers quickly, even if it's just a small number of them, and then learn from them, measure and adjust as you go, and crucially, be willing to fail. Just make sure you learn from your failures. And that is Innovation Envy. If you found any of this interesting, I'd encourage you to go check out the full Innovation Envy book zine. We've only covered a small portion of the story in today's show, and the zine details several more case studies and digs deeper into the how and the why of the Innovation Envy model. It's a quick, easy, and visually entertaining read. You can find it at insights-consulting.com or at the link in the show notes for this episode. Today's episode was produced by Felix Rumpf and me, Farrell Styers. I also did the mixing and tech production. In addition to co-authoring the Innovation Envy zine, Katya Polini edited the show. Thanks to Philip, Francois, Mathilde, and everyone else who participated and helped with making the episode.